Hey y'all, welcome to Cashville. This is No Ties 1879, a podcast where we, two Fijian folks, talk about our experiences growing up in a white Canadian suburb and raise awareness about Girmit, the British indentured labor system. I'm Ange. And I'm Ash. And before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional territory of the Tuasan and Musqueam First Nations and all of the Hunkuminum speaking people who have been stewards of this land since time immemorial. I would also like to offer my respect to all the elders who have gone before us and to the elders and First Nation people who are with us today. Cool. Finally got it the way that I wanted to do it. I finally remembered to cue it up. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> All right, y'all come see us live. Yep, we got a live show coming up on March the 5th. We had some pretty cool acts, uh, some stand-up comedy, some hip-hop performances, and a dance hall artist as well. Yeah, I'm really stoked for that. Um, yeah, we've got some pretty, pretty cool lineup um, of, you know, a bunch of artists who we've personally never worked with before, um, but we're lucky enough to be connected to the folks at High Phrase Podcast. Um, and I was actually thinking about how we never actually like talked about us being on their show mm-hmm. on the podcast. So that happened, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I was um, my episode was le- was released in December, and yours was just recently. And so you guys can go check both of those out on. Uh, the link in our bio on Instagram. There is a YouTube video of like the entire conversations that we have. And then High Phrase is also available on all of the streaming platforms just like us. Um, but they're really cool and their podcast is unique. Like they kind of just like, there's really no topic that's off topic or not allowed or, you know, they, they kind of really love to get into the nitty gritty of stuff. And so they are hosting, um, our friends, our friends, Elite and Mike are hosting a live show. And so they asked us to be a part of it. And we were like, yes, Mm -hmm. we would like to be a part of it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. So we definitely said yes. And now we're a part of it. So hopefully you guys can come make it out and see us live for the first time ever. Yeah, tickets are 20 bucks. Again, link in the bio, go check it out. Um, it'll be like probably the first thing that you see on the solo. But yeah, come see us and come hang out with us and say hello and support a bunch of awesome local artists from Vancouver who are getting back out there because COVID's over. Yeah, <laughs> restrictions are over and uh, we're getting back to some sort of normalcy. So it'll be nice to see everybody come out and... Have fun and enjoy. Yeah, totally. And like, I'm not going to lie. I'm really stoked for our little bit here because yeah. we've we've prepared something that's really funny and silly and creative and clever. Like, it's very clever. So we really want you guys to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, today, guys, we are sharing a interview that we had with our very dear friend Rizwan Abbas. Uh, we recorded with him a few weeks ago, and it was just like a really freaking awesome conversation. Riz is an archaeologist, and I think that was like the coolest thing, really, that we just to know that there's someone who is like an academic who's Fijian was very cool to us because we personally, like in our families, don't have a lot of. We don't have a lot of that here, I guess. Um, I think maybe more so overseas and people who don't, we don't really have a lot of personal connection with. But it was just really cool to to know that someone like him exists here in the Lower Mainland and does the work that he does. Yeah, 
it was really cool to talk to him as well. Um, he's a fountain of information for sure. Yeah. And he's uh, been a lot of places and seen a lot of cool archaeological things as well. So he's actually been there and done that and touched the things yeah. and spoken to the people and actually yeah. put his hands in the dirt, you know, so. Yeah, his his work has really, I mean, he he'll, you guys will hear it, he describes it all, but like a lot of his work up until now um, and continuing on, it really focuses on the indigenous community here in the lower mainland and in BC in general, actually. And he currently works for uh, Semiamu First Nation, which is really fucking cool. Um, and this is his work with the indigenous community here has inspired him to, you know, do some more work within his own community, the Indo-Fijian community here. And so the museum exhibit that's at uh, the Museum of Surrey was actually curated by him and some other Fijian community members that he was connected with and that we are now connected with. Mm-hmm. Our community is growing. Yeah, it is. yeah, and you know, I don't know about you, but like I felt like whenever we talk to him, I just feel like he's really like because he's just so like level and like his tone is he's not monotone, like he's not boring to listen to. He's definitely very engaging, but he's you know you know like when I talk, I'm kind of like up and down and kind of all over the place and kind of inconsistent. He's very like level and it's very calming. Yeah, right. Pretty chill. Like he's just chill he's so chill. Yeah, like, it's just very, yeah, he's very calming. He's just so smart, so intelligent, and just, like, a very pleasant person to be around and just absorb knowledge from. hmm yeah. yeah. We uh, are recording this after seeing him last night as mm-hmm. well. So that's so, also, yeah, just yeah, fresh in our minds. Yeah, we had some fun conversations yesterday as well, so. Yeah, last night was yeah. a great hang, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, we you will uh, get to know Rizwan Abbas a little bit uh, if you listen to the show, and hopefully by now, hopefully all of y'all <laughs> have either been to the museum to see the exhibit right. or have gone on a, the virtual tour online. If you don't live here, because you can. And if you live in Fiji and Australia, you really should if you're listening or anywhere if you're yeah, listening California. to us. Because, uh, you know, it's your duty, responsibility and obligation mm-hmm. as a Indo-Fijian to know something about yourself and to fucking support an archaeological guy who's doing <laughs> archaeological shit. Yeah. I mean, come on, man. Who do you know who's doing science like Honestly, this? Honestly, like it's, about about our people too. Yeah, like that's the gnarliest part about it is that like we are represented in a museum here in Canada. Like, never thought that I would see to see the day. And also through him, we actually learned that there is also a much smaller, lesser curated, I guess we'll say, exhibit at the Anthropology Museum mm-hmm. at UBC, yeah. which we're gonna check out as well. But like. We never thought we'd see the day where, like, we could see ourselves in in a museum in Canada. And so this is, like, groundbreaking to us, right? And I think it also has just really served as a really important reminder of just community in general and how important it is to us. And I don't know, like, almost like the sad or unfortunate sides of it where you know, those who get it, get it. And those who don't or are 
jealous of you or don't want you to succeed, like really show themselves, mm-hmm. right? Like I, it's, it's so unfortunate to, to hear and know that there's some people out there who don't think that an exhibit like this is a huge stride and that they don't want to, you know, d- like drop everything and run to it right now. Because that's kind of my feeling is like, we need to go and we need to go a couple more times before it's over as well. Um, and then there's some people who are just like, I don't need to, or, you know, I, I know them and like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it's just so weird to me. So, you know, really finding our community. And I think this just all goes back to the same thing or like 2022 motto, we do not chase, we attract and the right people will come to us. And I think that the right people came to Riz when he put himself out there in this exhibit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, super honored. So if you haven't checked it out yet, the museum exhibit is still on until May 1st. Uh, and the Museum of Surrey is located at 17710 56 A Ave in Surrey. And it's free, y'all. No excuses. It's free to get in. You need to go. So without further ado, here's the man himself. And we hope you enjoy this episode of No Ties 1879 with our friend Rizwan of Us. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Here. Yeah, like thank you for making the trip. Uh, we're in the basement studio, and how long did it take you to get here today? Uh, longer than expected because I took a wrong turn. Oh right. right? Yeah. <laughs> At SFPR, honestly, they should have made more off ramps off of it. That's also just like I feel like coming to Ladner. That's just a part of the process. <laughs> is it's a crossroads town. Nobody knows it exists. Yeah. They had to put a sign on the side of the highway when you're leaving Tawasin uh, and coming to uh, Ladner or going through the tunnel. They put a sign on the side of the highway for tra- ferry traffic to know that there is a town over here. You know, you don't have to just go to Vancouver. You can stop in yeah. Ladner. Tourism Ladner is yeah. out here trying it, to be there, like, hey guys. There is a place and there is stuff to do yeah. here. That is actually a hashtag. It's called Ladner is a place. Yeah, that's hashtag been a, Ladner that, is a place. Yeah, that's yeah. been a thing for a while. Yeah, um, Ladner is a place. That's fine. But yeah, I feel like whenever I whenever I give someone our address, I also provide it with some directions because it's never obvious. Especially like we live in a townhouse complex, and so also coming in here is also not very clear <laughs> all the time. I also know for a fact that the maps that Apple use. It are not the same as Google. Like I, f- I find Google to be more like precise and direct, whereas Apple is not always, <laughs> and they don't account for like one ways and stuff like that. I don't know. It's a whole thing. But regardless, thank you for making the trip. Yeah, man. We're really excited to have you here because even though you probably don't want to own it, you really are. Like we really find you to be an authority on a lot of the things that we talk about. Um, you're just, you're smart. Uh-huh. Yeah, you're if it weren't smart. for your exhibit, then we wouldn't have uh, connected with everybody that we have over the last little while. Yeah. So that was a, like, whether you meant to do it or not, your exhibit was a catalyst for more greater things. Yeah, so I've many been things. yearning for a connection with people and like... I've kind of like been people. like doing like my own thing for a while and like I fucked up a whole lot. So like I don't have that many friends anymore. Right. So like I've been like disconnected from friends and shit like that and trying to get like re- like reassimilate myself into some kind of like community. 
And in doing this podcast, we started doing our thing. And then you come along with your exhibit out of nowhere. And then now all of a sudden, like, I have a whole fucking family that I didn't even know about. Yeah. yeah. You know, to be honest, that's that's been the coolest thing about this this exhibit is meeting people, uh, like-minded individuals. Because yeah. I felt the same way. I, I was, I felt like an island. I've been doing whatever yeah. I've been doing by myself for so long that it just kind of, I, I was just so used to it. But uh, it's just so refreshing to have support. To have uh, to have to know that uh, you're not alone, um, to know that there's other people out there who feel the same way that you do, and I mean, I think I, that's what's been the most empowering part of this journey. Um, as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I, your um, your post recently about um, about not not being we're not we're not Indian enough, right? Mm. We're not accepted mm-hmm. as Fijian. Mm-hmm. We're not Indo Fijian enough, and when we walk into a room, it's pretty evident that we're not as Canadian as some of the other Canadians mm-hmm. in the room. So, so where does that leave us? Like, who are we as a, as a culture? Who are we as a people? Um, I think identifying our heritage and our history, first of all, helps us build a foundation for who we are. But, uh, but, to, but that's our heritage is Indian heritage or our history in Fiji. But like, let's just say the three of us that are in this room here right now, we, I, I'm, starting to, I'm starting to come to a point of realizing that we are our own culture. We are that culture. We're the culture who doesn't fit. We're not quite Canadian. We're not quite Indian. We're not Fijian enough. Uh, that's who we are. That's right. That's exactly who we are. Then this is what we're building because there wasn't anyone before us who had that culture. There wasn't any, and, and if there's going to be people after us, it's going to be after we start perpetuating that idea of these, of these are the ideals that we as a, as a Canadian Indo-Fijian culture have to perpetuate. Um, I told I told uh, my neighbor actually growing up in Sparwood he, uh, he he and I had a conversation just recently about the exact same thing and um, and that's when I, I started to explain to him how my own personal feelings how I owned my own heritage and my own culture was through my dad um, right. because because it's his it's his heritage his culture he was born and raised in Tavua he left because there was no work there to look for a better place for himself in Canada. He worked his ass off in Canada. Uh, he built a life for himself. He built a life for his wife and his kids. For me, uh, I took full advantage of that. I went to school. I went to university. I'm still doing whatever I'm doing. And I'm taking full advantage of the, the, the English system that we live in. And, um, and that's, that's my, my heritage just as much as my dad's. And nobody can take that away from me. Like nobody can can take that away from me. And I think that was the most important thing was that you, you might not feel like it's your heritage. I might not feel like this is my heritage, but it's my dad's. And if it's my, my, my dad's heritage, then by, it has to be mine because it's my family's heritage. It has to be mine just as much as it's his, it's mine. And, and when I talk about Indo-Fijians, when I talk about uh, the Gurmitias, or when I, when I talk about these people, I don't talk about this nebulous idea of just, of just, history. They're, they're my ancestors. Like out of these 60,000 people that had come to Fiji, 60,000 plus that had come to Fiji, at least four of those people were direct ancestors to me, at least four. And, uh, and I don't know which four they were. So what's more important to me is that they're all went through the same thing. We all had ancestors that went through the same thing. And that's mm-hmm. something that we can build from. And that's kind of the foundation of what, uh, what our culture as Canadian Indo-Fijians comes from. And uh, and back way back back when I was in uh, dry, in um, grad school or not grad school in uh, undergrad, uh, this would be a four hundred level course. So my very last year at SFU uh, after field school and stuff, and I had made a bunch of friends by this point. So uh, so we were on this we were in this class. It was a archaeological theory class, 
And, uh, you know, you talk about really cool concepts about uh, theoretical archaeology in this, in this class, and it's really more of a discussion class than it is anything else. And um, I remember distinctly, so this would be like 2002 or something like that. Um, I remember distinctly not being able to tell my class how I felt about what nationality I was, what culture I was, and what, uh, what uh, ethnicity I was. I couldn't quite, I couldn't say it. I couldn't put to words how I felt I was. And I remember the class being all confused. And mind you, most of these people were all European descent. All of them were. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and they couldn't quite understand what I meant. And there was lots of puzzled looks. And I don't blame them because I myself couldn't quite come up with the words of what it was that, uh, that I was myself. Uh, it took me like 20 years uh, of kind of figuring it out. And I'm still, I'm still figuring it out, but I've kind of come to a point where I can comfortably say I'm a Canadian Muslim of Indo-Fijian descent. And what that means, and it, each word has its own weight to it. And even in the, in the, in the way, in the, in the, uh, the order that they're put in mm-hmm. has, has yes, weight to it. Absolutely. Like that, that makes, to me, that makes the most sense because mm-hmm. I was born and raised in Canada. I'm Canadian through and through. I don't care what anybody else says. You know, I love maple syrup, hockey, Tim Hortons, <laughs> you name it. That's, that's, that's you what You love it is. hockey, yeah. Yeah, so, you walked in yeah. with your Grant Fuhrer yeah, hat. He's <laughs> wearing a Grant Fuhrer hat right now. <laughs> Got to represent. So, yeah. So, so there's, there's Canadian, right? And then the fact that I'm Muslim kind of intertwines with being Indian because in Indian culture, religion and culture are very intertwined. Um, so so I, I, li- I like to point that out. And not only because of the fact that uh, where it's so intertwined, um, Gurmitias in, in Fiji, there was only about 17% of the total population of Gurmitias were Muslim. Uh, so when you, when you leave your country and you go to a different place and you don't have the foundation or the structure that you had before, right. then you're basically building stuff from scratch. Uh, for the fact that this minority population of Muslims was able to retain their religion and semblances of their culture uh, is something that I'm personally proud of because I wouldn't be here as an Indo-Fijian Muslim if it wasn't for my ancestors retaining their religious beliefs and customs um, historically in Fiji. So I like to say that I'm Muslim as well. And of course, Indo-Fijian, I mean, of Indo-Fijian descent is is who we are, right? So, um, and then that whole idea of Indo-Fijian, the whole concept of being an Indo-Fijian is something that's being explored as we speak. Like that's that's what we're doing. That's that uh, you know your 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 podcast is doing that. You know my exhibit is doing that. Um, you know people like Arif and do uh, rapping on stage. Like this is this is what an Indo-Fijian Canadian is. This is who we are. You know you, you know we don't like I don't know what it is. I don't know what an Indo-Fijian Canadian is. We don't know what, what an Indo-Fijian Canadian is. But if we look in the mirror, we're defining it. That's that's where we are. Right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that cool? Like we're making it up as we go along. Yeah, we are. Where, you know, I always used to, uh, like, people always used to, um, you know, when white people would (laughs) appropriate black culture, I never really understood that. I was just like, well, it's just clothes and it's just rap music. And this was before I knew anything about anything, right? I'd be like, well, what's the big deal? Like, well, it is a big deal because they had to, you took them from somewhere else and you brought them here and now they have to build something from scratch and this is what they've created and now you want to fucking come and appropriate the shit out of that mm-hmm. right so now like what you said for me it's just like the same thing i could i compare it to that like we're kind of building it right now yeah yeah i mean you know growing up in the 90s 
in um, in Sparwood. Like I, I grew up in a small town, a small uh, yeah. Coal, tell us about Sparwood. Mm-hmm. Sure, um, Sparwood is a small coal mining town in southeastern BC. You know that small little tip of BC that sticks into Alberta. Yeah, it's like yeah. The easternmost town of British Columbia, like yeah. half an hour away from the border. There's about five thousand people's population of the place. And um, it was a coal mining town, so most of the people that, who, that were there were coal miners. But uh, there was a surprisingly large population of South Asians in, uh, in Sparwood. And right. moreover, there was a large population of Indo-Fijians there, Com- like uh, on average, right, compared to, to the population of the place. There was a lot. There was quite a bit. I, I, I have to say that- um, When you were there, sorry, yeah, or like present day? Both, well. both actually. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so it's actually, I think- one of the coolest things about growing up in Sparwood uh, was that I was exposed to all different types of races, all different types of cultures, and all different types of religions from a very young age. Like I remember back in grade seven being at Stephen Mosher's house and uh, seeing <laughs> his parents kiss for the first time <gasps> and being completely embarrassed and shocked by the fact that this right. was happening in front of my PDA. eyes. Yeah. 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 Unbelievable. Can't Unbelievable. have that. Right. 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 Like, it was just a peck on the, the peck on the lips, but to right. me it was like, oh my God, did I just see that? Mm-hmm. And um, you know my my um, my close friends were Punjabi Sikhs. Um, I had uh, white friends, of course, lots of white friends because I mean, grew up in Sparwood, and uh, and had the opportunity to to realize or understand that there's more to life. There's there's different types of lives. There isn't just the life that like like Indo Fijians live or, or Hindustanis live or Indians live. Um, I saw white people. I saw I saw Punjabi people. I saw Hindu people. I saw the way that they lived. The 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 life that they had. The values that they had. Um, the ideals that they had, um, and and I kind of I appreciated that. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't believe that um, my my nieces and nephews here in Surrey have that same opportunity. Um, you'd think that you know, living in in a, in a bigger place like the Lower Mainland, you'd have such a huge population that you would be exposed to a lot more different cultures and, and genres of people, but you're not. Um, uh, a lot of the people will just kind of like, especially in Surrey, because the population there is just so so skewed towards uh, South Asians. That um, that a lot of my my nieces and nephews, as a matter of fact, have uh, have grown up with Indo-Fijian friends only, and um, and never actually had the opportunity to have white friends or Punjabi friends or even have dinner inside a white friend's house. Like that's a big deal. Like it's actually a big deal to live in a country like Canada and not ever step into a white person's home for dinner yeah. and not understand what the culture is like. So there's a lot of segregation that happens in the in, in the cities that uh, we didn't actually get in, in Sparwood growing up out there. Uh, and I think that was one of the reasons I, I appreciated. Uh, I, that's actually one of the reasons why I became an archaeologist, I, I would have to say. Because moving to Surrey when I was 15, you know, I came to Surrey and all of a sudden, whoa, like there's this huge Indo-Fijian population here. And, uh, and especially with my family, there's a huge Muslim Indo-Fijian population here. And I was exposed to aspects of my culture that I had never seen before. You know, I'd never walked into a mosque before. I'd never prayed Friday Friday prayers before. I'd never done the um, the the rituals required for Eid and, and things of that nature. I never did these things before because oh, really? I never had. I never had. Well, I'm sorry. What was that really like yeah. in Sparwood? You well, yeah. guys didn't well, even well, there was with only, the amount. Of well, there was only two there. Muslim families in Sparwood. Okay. There was ourselves and then this Pakistani family. Okay, uh, that was it. So we would visit them on uh, on like Ramadan, for example. We'd right. go over to their house to to break fast. And then we'd invite them over. So really only once a year we would see them. That was about it. Um, of course, Nadia, she, she went to school with me. She was in my grade. So I, I saw her every day. But nonetheless, as a, as a interactions between Muslim families that didn't happen very often between us. I, um, it was my mom who taught me about uh, my values and culture, uh, my religion. 
And it was my parents who taught me about uh, my, my language, for example. I think it's one of the things I'm really proud of is the fact that I can still speak the language um, and I can still speak it well, I believe. Well, I probably still need more practice though. But, uh, but we, we learned, we had a good foundation of our culture uh, while we lived in, in Sparwood. So when we moved to Surrey, it was like I could fit in, but I didn't fit in. Like I didn't fit in at all because I, I, I had seen, like I said before, I had seen what life was like in white people's homes, in Punjabi people's homes, in Sikh people's homes, in Hindu people's homes, in Christian people's homes, in a mix of Christian Hindu people's homes. So when I came here, I, came, I saw that in my family, there was a very set way of doing things. And there was a very set way of, well, you know, you, you, you go to school and you, you're, you're, you become whatever jungly guy you want to be until you, you know, your parents say, okay, it's time for you to get a job, get married. Then you get married and more, more often than not, you go to Fiji and you get an arranged marriage and you come back and you, you come back to here. And at least this was what it was like in my family. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you come back here and um, you, have a, you start a family and you become an adult and you start working. And then uh, you work, you work, you work. Eventually you get old, uh, you retire, you maybe go pilgrimage, go to Hajj, you know, right. cleanse yourself of all your impurities and all your issues. Then you become a religious man and then you die. That's kind of like- Very linear. Was, yeah, and that was yeah. kind of, I identified that as the life cycle of the Indo-Fijian Muslim. That's, that was my own kind of, I did, that's what I had identified. And I knew that that lifestyle wasn't something, one, that I wanted to do, or two, that I had to, because I had seen and been exposed to so many different options in life that there's, I could do anything I wanted to. And um, that is, I think that was one of the reasons why um, I decided to be an archaeologist was to because I had been spending so much time um, studying my own culture, like analyzing it and just observing it. To and most of the questions I'd be asking was why, like why are we doing things this way, or why are we doing things that way, or why aren't we doing things this way or that way? And of course, I would never get any answers. You know, most of the people would be like, "How would be probably yeah. the biggest thing I would get, or uh, or you know, it was just. There was, or that's just the way it is. But, uh, you know, inquisitive minds want to know why. So um, one of the reasons, I keep saying one of the reasons, there's many reasons why I became an archaeologist. But uh, but I think the, just wanting to answer the question, why? Why we do the things the way we do was really something that uh, that got me. That is such a good question because I feel like we've been wondering that since we were kids too, just constantly like, but why? And then when you ask that question, that's like the most like demonized question I feel just in a brown house. Yeah. In a brown just house. Do what like, I tell you. Don't, don't ask, ask questions. Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't ask why, like <laughs> yeah. stay ignorant. Yeah, We do this because this is the way we do it. Yeah. Or, or this is how we do something. And, and uh, my uncles used to say that a lot, especially during like in religion, when we do some rituals a certain way and not a different way. And I would ask why it was like, because that's the way we do it. So, I would question that for well, first of all, who is we? Yeah. Was my first question is who who do, who do you who do you say when you say we? Is that just me and you? Is it just my immediate family? Is it our larger family? Is it my culture? Is it like who do you say that? Like who do you mean? And of course, when I answer that, when I ask that question and try to find answers for it, I I, I find that within the Indo-Fijian community, within the Muslim Indo-Fijian community itself, there's a lot of division. So that there's there's that, uh, and then of course we don't do it that way so if if we do it then the other question is well what's the other way and who does it that way and why so there's a lot of these questions that I always wanted to get answered uh that I that I wanted to um to explore and I and of course 
going into, well, graduating university or no, sorry, graduating high school. I, uh, I left high school in grade 12, went to Douglas college and, uh, promptly I, uh, enrolled in business courses. Mm-hmm. Because that's why would you do? Yeah, business man, right? Make some money yeah. and stuff. I also did. You're brown guy. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. We just become accountants and shit. <laughs> that's right. Work so. in a TD Canada Trust. <laughs> <laughs> Work in a bank. Just get a good job. Yeah. You know, and just, just stay with it. Yes. So, so <laughs> or I did, dump truck, or dump yeah, truck, dump truck, or um, <laughs> or you could uh, be a delivery driver. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Career. Yeah. The cliches. But uh, yeah, I just didn't. I just, I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something different, and uh, and, uh, and so I took. So obviously, I took business courses. And after two years of Douglas College uh, business courses, um, failing them, oh. I had to. Well, actually, it wasn't. It was even cooler than that. <laughs> even uh, cooler. Yeah, just didn't yeah. go. I just didn't go. <laughs> oh, yeah. nice. Yeah, I, okay. I, I, just, I would. I would go to class up till midterms, and then I couldn't bring myself up to study for the midterms. Yeah. So I just wouldn't go. Yeah. And I would just get UNs. And uh, instead yes. of Fs or instead of dropping the course, I just wouldn't show up. And I was working full-time at the airport, so I was making good money. So I was really just using my full-time student status as a tax write-off. And so at the end of the year, I'd just get all this money back. And, um, and then eventually, I had to, had to get my ass in gear and, and do something with my life. And like I said, I didn't want to be a, a courier my whole life. So I went to the, uh, to the, the, uh, the advisor there, academic advisor at Douglas College. And she said probably the most profound thing to me that uh, that I've never forgotten. Well, she said a bunch of profound things, but she looked at my she looked at my uh, my transcript, and she's like, "I can't believe this." It's like you graduate, you you failed more classes than you've passed, but you still have a C plus GPA. I don't think <laughs> I've ever seen that before in my life. Like, obviously, you're you know what you're doing. You're good at you're a good student because you get A's and B's on the things you pass. You just haven't figured out how to drop courses when yeah. you don't want to do them. So, so, and then she said like, there's some courses in school, like microeconomics, for example, Ugh. that uh, are the most, like microeconomics is probably the most difficult course we offer at Douglas College is what she said. And I'd failed it at this point at three times already. And uh, I was like, wow, that's the hardest course. It wasn't that hard. It was actually not bad. And there's some courses that no matter how hard you try, no matter how hard you work your ass off, you're just mentally not good at it. And you just won't do well. Uh, statistics for me was that one. And uh, so with that, with that knowledge, with that, uh, with, with that information, I went back out and I had to, and then I decided, okay, well, I'm not doing business anymore. I'm going to do archaeology. If I'm going to spend time and money uh, spending in school, then I'm going to do what I wanted to do and what I enjoy doing. Uh, when I was in grade six, my, uh, my grade six social studies teacher, Ms. Holland, introduced me to uh, early man, her um, homo habilis, homo erectus. And uh, it blew me away, just blew my mind just to think that there was people here before us that kind of looked like us, but they were nothing like us. And we evolved from them. It was just amazing to me. It was amazing. This the concept of evolution completely captured my imagination. So I decided to, to take archaeology as a, as a major in Douglas College after this whole... Uh, business debacle. And unfortunately, I had to redo every single one of those business courses that I failed so I could get a grade for them. Yeah. So I could actually pass. Because they were going to live on your transcript forever forever, with a UN. That's a 0.0 GPA right there. Yes. So I had to take all these business courses again. 
And, uh, and the, the weirdest thing, I took the microeconomics course, which is like the hardest course ever. And, uh, and the, the prof, uh, he let me in. Back, back then, you would you'd just go to class. I never registered for any courses. You would just show up for the first day of course. Then after the class was over, you'd go to the prof and say, hey, can you sign me into your course? And then he would sign you okay. in. And then that's how, you, that's how I would get all my classes. Um, but uh, he looked at me and he's like, I don't know. This is like the fourth time you're doing this. Are you sure you're going to pass? Are you going to finish this time? And I had to like assure him that yeah. yes, you know, I'm really serious about getting this done. So I did the midterm. The midterm was hard. It was one of the hardest midterms I'd ever done. And the final came around at the, at the end of the year. And it was the easiest final I'd ever done in my life. I don't get it. I still Weird. don't. Like, like if I if I see that prof ever again, I will have to ask him. Like, I don't know if he gave me an easy test just because <laughs> it's my fourth time trying at this or if that was just what he did with everyone. It was like, he put you through the ringer through the whole year. And then at the end of the year, it was like, this is your reward. It's an easy final exam. Like two Maybe. Questions. <laughs> but, I, but as I finished it, um, I went to Douglas. Uh, after that, yeah, after Douglas... Uh, my, my associate's degree at Douglas College is probably, of all my degrees, is probably the one I'm most proudest of because it was the hardest one of all of them to get. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to finish all those courses and, uh, and get all that stuff done. And that was kind of like, if I hadn't, that was the one I needed to get done if I wanted to do anything else in my right? life. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the one I'm most proudest of. So you did uh, just your associates at Douglas or did you do your full No, I just did my associates in arts degree at Douglas before I went to SFU to get my bachelor's in archaeology. Bachelor's in archaeology. And when you made the choice to go to SFU to do that, did you know what you wanted to do with that archaeology degree? I had absolutely no idea. Okay. As a matter of fact, I had justified doing archaeology because I thought... There's nothing to study in my history and culture. So instead, I'm going to study First Nations history and culture and help nice. them out. That's, that, was my, that was what I justified, how I justified getting into archaeology. Right. I mean, I couldn't have been more wrong, obviously. But, uh, but nonetheless, I went in as an uh, advocate for First Nations and, uh, and went to SFU. And I, I finished four semesters worth of courses. No. Yeah, four semesters worth of courses in three semesters. So I did like like five I full course ass. loads wow. uh, the whole time just to get it over and done with. And um, and I graduated with a 3.5 GPA. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, and, I could uh, never. <laughs> <laughs> but, but. Uh, you know, put in the work though. <laughs> but the thing is, I wish, I wish I had somebody there who could help me along my, my studies because I didn't have anybody. This was, I was, um, I was the first person in my my family, my extended family, both my parents' sides in Canada to go to to go to post secondary school, let alone graduate or whatever, right? So I didn't have anybody who could pull me aside and, and give me advice and guidance as I went through school. And so my my assumption going to school was that it was all about the grades, not about the knowledge, but the grades. So you know, I graduated with a three point five GPA. Whoopee. But did I know what I studied? And honestly, I didn't. I didn't know anything. I, I got to a point where when I was studying for exams, I would study the night before, cram the whole night before. And I was so damn good at it that I could, I could recall in my mind my notes as, they were, I had a, I had a, had a, as I had written them. And I could word for word, verbatim, write what was on my notes on the exam. And that's exactly what I did. Oh my God. And I, I, you know, I can call up my pros right now and they can probably vouch for me, but I word for word. And they would think that I was cheating. Like I had to have been <laughs> cheating because 
at one at one exam, I got ninety nine out of a hundred because uh, because Professor uh, McMillan Allen he, uh, he he took one mark off for a wrong word that I used because it wasn't word for word. I actually missed a word and, and said the wrong word than than what he had put. But uh, but that was what I did. So I was doing. I was really good at it. So I kept doing it. And man, the anxiety and stress of of cramming the night before is terrible, yeah. horrible. But um, the second I'd walk out the door, you know, I forget all about oh it. Oh my goodness! No, yeah. The weight off yeah. after finishing an exam, Isn't it the even best? if you know that it was probably a shit show. Like yeah. even if you know, like oh, I probably barely made that one. Like it's just the weight off yes. is like the most incredible feeling on the planet. Yeah, yeah. I remember my last day at Douglas, my last exam at SFU, my last when I submitted my paper at UCL. My last exam, I remember them all. It's like the best feeling walking out of the building knowing I don't have to come back in here again. Yeah, (laughs) fuck this place. (laughs) Cool. Okay, so you finish your bachelor's in archaeology and then what happened? Well, after I finished my bachelor's in archaeology, I got into consulting archaeology. So I was working, uh, I I started off in Fort Nelson working for uh, a company up in northeastern BC in the oil and gas industry. So we'd be doing a lot of uh, surveying of um, the oil patch. Really, it was just going out into into like boreal forest, like you know, Burns Bog here. Sure. Yeah, Basically, yeah. that's all, pretty much northeastern BC is just a bog. That's all it is: black spruce, muskeg. That's all it is. And um, nice. we would go out there, and, and it was it was it was so much fun though, because in the winter time it was when all the work would be done, because that's when the uh, the swamps would be frozen, so you could actually get in there right so we'd you know bomb in there in snowmobiles and chest deep snow before uh, anybody else had ever gotten there i mean there's been times where where i'd be bombing down on a snowmobile for like an hour hour and a half to get to our our, our job and then you get off you jump off the snowmobile and you know the snow comes up to your chest and you completely forget that you know you're been bombing on chest deep snow this whole time just kind of surfing on top of it oh my God. and um and you know, it was just yeah the, the winter field work in the northeast was something that it's very unique because winter archaeology doesn't get done anywhere else in the world, as far as I know, other than northeastern BC. And um, the reason they do winter archaeology in northeastern BC is because that's when all the work gets done. Because the only way the machines can go in and start drilling for natural gas in the swamps is in the frozen time when sure. the swamps are frozen, right? Mm-hmm. So, so they had to f- make protocols to uh, to, in- to enable archaeologists to go in there and survey these areas. And it's not hard. I mean, I'm sorry. It's not. It's it's very hard. It's not. It's not easy at all. It's uh. It's a lot of hard work. Like you know, you're coming in and trying to identify landforms that are covered in, you know, anywhere to you know up to five feet of snow. So you're looking for little bumps in the landscape to try to identify as landforms to, that you're going to test on. Then you have to go out and, sh- and and shovel all the snow, clear all the snow off the landscape. Oh my God. So uh, so you got the actual landform that you're looking at, and then once you have the landform. And then we would take these things called cutoff saws, which were these um, circular, it's a saw, basically it's a chainsaw, but it has a circular blade on the end. Yeah, and, yeah. and the construction people use it a lot for uh, for cutting up uh, asphalt. So we yeah. use that. We actually would literally cut frozen squares out of the ground and then bag those. And then we'd take them back out of the bush, load them in our truck, take them back to, to uh, the warehouse. And then they would sit there for about a week and thaw out. And then one of the grunt workers would have to screen it and see if there's any uh, any artifacts found inside these screens. So that was that was like a typical typical winter workday out out there. And I mean, I mean, we're working, and then you know it doesn't get there's a lot there's a lot of uh, 
Well, there's a lot of work in the winter, but there wasn't a lot of uh, daylight hours. So you had to get a lot of work done between like seven and four. So many things to think about. It was just, it was, and it was crazy. It was like, there was times where, and and I think about this now, about 10 years removed from doing consulting work like this, but uh, there were times where, where I would be the crew chief with like four or five people that I was working with and we'd get dropped off by helicopter to the middle of nowhere with nothing more than just GPS coordinates and a radio. And uh, we'd be dropped off in the helicopter guy. The pilot would be like, all right, well, I'll circle back here in about four hours and check on you guys and see how you're doing. See ya. And he would leave. And at that point, I was responsible for the safety and well-being of like four or five people in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, luckily, thank God, nothing ever, nothing bad ever happened. But, uh, but I mean, there's the possibility uh, of like mistakes. of anything happening, yeah. right? Like we've come across all sorts of animals out there, but... Uh, Luckily, nothing, nothing dangerous. We, although one time cougar was stalking us. <laughs> but, uh, That's always yeah, fun. Yeah, that was yeah. Well, if a cougar shows up, if you see a cougar, or no, if a cougar lets you see it, yeah, you're in trouble. Yeah. Luckily, we turned around and realized there's three of us, one the cougar, and then she was like, "Oh, I'm out of here," and then went back okay. to the bush. And Damn. grizzly bears and lynx and moose and oh, caribou and all that stuff. So cool. Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing cooler than identifying an archaeological site. Like finding a newly identified archaeological site is probably one of the coolest feelings in the world. To to dig up, you know, you dig a hole, you throw the the dirt or the soil, I should say, in a in a screen, screen it, and there's evidence of of past human activity. There. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, that's the the connection that you have with with. And you don't even know who, right? You just hold this artifact in your hand and you're like, I'm the first person to hold this in like 3,000 years, 500 years, you know? Who knows? But just that connection is it's amazing. It's such, a, such an amazing bond. It's kind of interesting for, you know, just an outsider hearing this, thinking about how 3,000 years ago there was someone there who walked, lived, whatever, and them doing that at that time is now of importance. And they, they had no idea that, you know, in 3,000 years, my being here is going to be of importance to someone. Like, that's pretty cool. Is it? Is like, it? that's fucking sick. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I remember the first time I held an arrowhead in my hand and I thought to myself, wow. like, the guy who made this or used this has no idea how important this is, like, years and years later like how significant the, fa- the find is or yeah. or or how important it is to me that that i found this like mm-hmm. he has no idea and and that's kind of like the stuff that we have now who knows what's gonna happen in the future with it right like mm-hmm. yeah this history is crazy so okay you mentioned arrowhead so what is what would you say is like the coolest thing you've ever found or like maybe you found something that was evidence of something else there's a couple of things um I was excavating at the Fish Creek Provincial Park in Calgary one summer, and I found a um, a little piece of pottery. It was only it was only about uh, like half an inch thick, and um, well, half an inch big. Um, and it was it was they they call it basant pottery, B E S A N T, and uh, it was the westernmost piece of basant pottery found in Canada. So they had found this type of pottery all over Saskatchewan, Manitoba, uh, and uh, maybe bits of Ontario. But uh, in, in, but not that far west, like all the way out to almost the foothills. So uh, it expanded the, uh, the the geographic region of this this pottery, 
by, by this by this uh, piece that I found. That was cool. That was more like a nerdy cool. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the coolest artifact I found was uh, I was excavating in Banfield at uh, the Coast Guard uh, station there. Yeah, and uh, they have this really nice shell mitten that uh, that they they plopped the, uh, the the station on, obviously. So uh, so we were excavating that, and I found a fire pit, which was about this big, in in the shell mitten. So it was good. It was a good like meter and a half deep. There was this uh, fire pit that was made, and uh, and then and then while we were doing the screening of the soils there, I found a uh, a knife which was probably about five centimeters long. It was a uh, it was a chipstone knife as opposed to ground stone. So it was it was made by chipping the like flaking off the chips of stone to shape the stone as opposed to grinding the stone to shape it. The significance of that is the chipstone technology was a lot older than the culture that's actually in uh, Vancouver Island right now. So this this wow. this artifact was actually older. It was actually a, it's probably a uh, a Salish artifact, but the Salish people now live on the on the mainland. They don't live on the island anymore. So this was actually when the Salish people actually lived, still lived on the island is when this came from. So wow. that was my coolest one. Which would have been when? Oh, I I couldn't even tell you. Um, wow, like yeah, that long like ago. Been, couldn't even say ago. that long. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool. So do you ever? Um, Okay, so now I'm going to geek and maybe be a little corny, but like, do you ever, like when you make a find, do you ever like feel like a moving sensation? Like, do you ever get kind of like cheesy about it and like get emotional about finding something? Oh, I'd say almost every time. Yeah. 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 Because I feel like I would absolutely, yeah, I feel like I would get really emotional and I would have to do something like significant to like well, honor that moment or something. Like, I think the first couple of times, yeah, yeah, the first couple of times I found sites, there was that connection. There's that feeling of um, of just of euphoria. I would have to say, uh, yes, there was. I mean, I remember. I distinctly remember the first artifact I ever found. Um, I remember the first site I ever found. Um, but. But eventually, it just maybe I'm just you know I've been doing it for like 20 years. Eventually, it gets to a point where it's more of just celebration of yes, I found a site. Cool. Like having that connection. I mean, especially in the Northeast. The Northeast, I did a lot, lots and lots and lots of work up there, and it's really hard to find sites up there because the soil is so acidic, and um, there's not a lot of soil accumulation in the first place, and um, and the sites are so sparse because the population up there was sparse. I mean, where are you going to live? Are you going to live in southern southern BC or northwestern BC if you have a choice, right? Yeah. So there's not that many people up there in the first place. So there's not a not a lot of sites. Like if you went to to interior British Columbia, for example, and you did you dug holes there, you could find a site pretty much anywhere. You dig a hole because there's just more. This is, concentration is bigger. But out there, sometimes we'd go years and years without finding anything, and then all of a sudden we'd find something, and it was like, wow, this is this great. It's just like a relief. And uh, just, just it makes it just makes it all worthwhile because I mean, there's just so much work into going out there and, and doing this that uh, and not finding stuff. Right? And, and honestly, as a consulting archaeologist, that's kind of what you're hoping for. Is you're kind of hoping for going out there and not finding sites because you don't want to disturb sites. You don't want people to disturb sites. You don't want companies to come in and build their infrastructure over archaeological sites. So if there isn't any, then that's great. Of course, of course, if we do find some, then we give them recommendations for mitigation and how to avoid the site in the first place and, and go from there. 
Mm. So like that's um, like if we were going to Cole's notes, like what you do, it's pretty much that. Yeah. 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 Okay. I'd be as a consulting archaeologist. The research question is, uh, are there or are there not archaeological sites in this area? And if there is an archaeological site here, how can we avoid impacts to it? Awesome. Okay. That's actually like a really great, like that's helpful for me because I'm sure as an archaeologist, there is numerous things that you could do. And so like to describe what it is that you do must be challenging sometimes. Probably to, I I mean, I find personally, I find having to explain what I've done in like past, past jobs to like family yeah. can be hard. Try explaining it to your immigrant parents what you do as an archaeologist. Right. Not easy thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, well, tell us about that because I know you you had an experience with uh, yeah. your dad, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my dad passed away um, uh, just it's almost just, just over a year now. So last year, last December, um, he was sick. He was at the hospital. So we had a, I had an opportunity to spend a considerable amount of time with him. And um, I took that opportunity to actually explain to him what I do as an archaeologist. And normally... At uh, that point, at that point, which is like you've been doing it for how oh, long? Yeah. At I'd that been point? doing it for like almost twenty years at that point. Yeah, and there had been a lot of times when you know I would talk to my dad or talk to my family about some of the artifacts that I'd found, like that chipstone uh, chipstone knife that I was telling you about, and I could see my dad's face, like I could literally see his face just kind of like blank, this blank right. over where he just, he just like not understanding either, the either significance. not understanding the significance or not caring about what it was. He sure. just I don't know what it was, but I could see his face just kind of blank out and just kind of space out. My daughter has the same face when I explain stuff to her these days. Sure. <laughs> uh, and um, and so so I knew like he didn't get it. So, and and obviously, you know, as a as an immigrant, uh, you know, any when you're coming here, you're more interested in building a life for yourself as opposed to exploring the history of the area, right? So I mean, you totally survival get it. mode, yeah. yeah. So uh, so I sat down with him and I explained to him what I do as an archaeologist and um, I was talking to him about how I uh, I study First Nations culture and history and and how I excavate uh, their archaeological sites and how I try to identify and build, uh, re-piece together what their life was like beforehand. And as I was explaining this to him, I, uh, I came to the realization that uh, I should be studying my own culture and history now, instead of First Nations, like, actually, why am I studying First Nations culture and history when I should be studying my own culture and history? And um, it wasn't, and, and to justify that, it wasn't my own culture and history that I wanted to study. It was my dad's culture and history that I wanted to study. It's like, why don't I study my dad's? And and of course, at this point, I, I know that my dad only had a l- little bit of time left. So it was it was important to me to study his culture and history at this point uh, to kind of preserve my dad's story um, and, he, and what he had done for, for not just for my family, but for, or not just for my immediate family, but for, for my larger family in general. So, uh, so that's what I did. I, I came to the, I came to realize that uh, it's time. Like I've, I've been doing this for about 20 years now. I've been doing cultural heritage studies for a long time. I've been studying first nations culture, um, community and, uh, and history for so long that, you know, I think I'm prepared now to take on the challenge of trying to study and piece together my own culture and heritage and seeing what I can come out of that. Amazing. Thanks. I'm really excited for that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's been like, I've been doing, I, as an archeologist for 20 years, I've kind of been spinning my wheels. Um, Back in like 2010, I got pretty, uh, I got pretty burnt out about it. Like Northeastern archaeology, uh, oil and gas archaeology is very intense. Like they want stuff done yesterday. Mm-hmm. And if you don't get the stuff done, it costs 
thousands, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a day for these people not to be working because there's so much equipment involved. Yeah. So, so it, at one point in my career, I was doing the job of three different people. I shit you not, three different people, two people had left and I took over their work. And uh, eventually I just got burned out. I just couldn't do this anymore, man. It was just, you know, you, you, you're, you're working 10 hour days in the, in the office, you know, six, seven days a week, or you're going out in the field every half, you know, two days out of two weeks out of the month and, and going out there. It was just eventually got to a point where once you're getting on the plane, if you're already looking forward to the flight back getting off, it's time for you to change and do something else. So, um, so I left, I left and went, uh, I went to, to London and, uh, Went to the University College of London to do my master's degree at the School of Archaeology there. Cool. And, um, and I did it on human evolution because, well, that's why I was in, got yeah. into archaeology in the first that place. That was like your first experience yeah. in grade six, exactly. right? Exactly. It's my yeah. first love. So, so that's what I went into and, uh, and did, studied human archaeology or human evolution. And um, I actually studied the shape and size variation of molars of uh, extant apes and humans. And, uh, and and then compared that with uh, the Piltdown Man specimen from England. I don't know if you guys are, are mm-hmm. familiar with Piltdown Man, but uh, tell us anyways. Yeah. But I, yeah. <laughs> well, Piltdown, I mean, I'm an ancient alien person, so this fits right into yeah. my narrative. But totally. tell everybody who doesn't know. So so Piltdown Man is kind of is the British response to the identification of Neanderthals in, in Germany and other uh, early men in uh, in. in, in, in rest of uh, Europe, uh, I think in France as well. So there was all this early man being found. This would be in the 19, or the turn of the century. So 1912, let's say, was when this was happening. This is, this is when, uh, when our ancestors were still, you know, going strong in Fiji. So at this point in time, the, uh, the community, the scientific community in the UK was kind of up in arms about the fact that how could Germany and, uh, and France and all these other countries have the, the, the cradle of humanity. It shouldn't be there. It should be in London. It should be in England is where it should be. So what happened was some researcher buried a uh, uh, orangutan head with a human jaw. Was it? Mm-hmm. Was a, uh, a ra- orangutan jaw with a, with a gorilla head. Yes, that's what it was. A gorilla okay. head and an orangutan jaw. Act, buried it, right? So some, some researchers found this. And, uh, and it was like a million years old. That's like, it was in, in the soil at a level of a million years old, which was older than any other early ha- human uh, fossils that had ever been found before. So there was this huge, huge, um, there's a huge news that, oh, the cradle of mankind has been found. It was actually found and it actually happens to be in England. Go figure, right? So for the longest time, <laughs> people thought that the Piltdown Man was like, and this was exactly what people were thinking. People were thinking, well, if we're going to find human evolution, it's going to be somebody with a big brain and small jaw, just like us, right? We're humans. We have small teeth compared to other apes, but we have huge brains. So that must be the logical step in evolution for humanity. So that's exactly what was found. And, uh, and they're like, well, we can't quite identify this jaw because there's no canine teeth and there's a couple of molars are missing. Well, guess what happened the next year? They went back there and they're surveying and they found what they needed, the canine teeth and a couple other molars. <gasps> Just happened to find them to better identify this specimen. So for the longest time, Piltdown Man was considered the, uh, the, 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 the beginning of uh, humanity for, for the world. 
And as this research was being done, there was this person named Philip Tobias in South Africa who found uh, Australopithecus africanus, which was a, uh, a species of humans that were about, I, I'm just going to guess here, 3.2, let's say 3.2 million years old. Do the research yourself, guys. Australopithecus africanus. <laughs> so, um, so he was about 3.2 million years old. And people in the, um, in the, um, in the scientific community scoffed at this. Because they were like, There's, it's impossible. Like, you're telling us that the cradle of humanity was in South Africa? That doesn't make sense because look at our, our society. You know, it should be in, Afri- it should be in, uh, in Europe where, where it belongs. Right. So for the longest time, th- that was the idea. That was what people thought. People thought that uh, Piltdown Man was kind of the beginning. And of course, now what was happening was in Africa, they were finding more and more fossils, like in Tanzania, in, ten- in uh, Tanzania and the old of Gorge, for example, they were finding a lot of uh, stuff. The leakies were finding things. All of a sudden, older, older ape-like, human-like fossils were being found in Africa. That was further pushing Piltdown more to the periphery because now all of a sudden Piltdown kind of seems like this, this fossil that doesn't make sense in the actual, you know, the, sure. the bush of human evolution. So in 1953, three researchers decided to revisit Piltdown Man specimen and do uh, modern analysis on it using modern scientific techniques. So what they did was they uh, they analyzed the color of it, they analyzed the composition of the specimen, and they came to realize that it was actually a painted fossil that wasn't as old as they thought it was, that somebody had planted it on purpose so researchers could find it, thinking that Europe was the old, where, thinking that uh, England was the oldest place. So that's the uh, that's the story of the Piltdown specimen. It was really just, and, and to this day, of course, nobody knows who who the hoaxer was who uh, who planted this. But uh, but my responsibility in this story of the Piltdown man was to uh, was to serve was to study apes, gorillas, orangutans, and human molars, and try to identify the size and shape of them, and then look at the molars of the uh, the Piltdown specimen to see exactly where they matched the best to try to for once and for all identify what skull this came from and what species the jaw came from. So that's what I did. And what did your findings tell you? Oh, you're going to have to read the journal. (laughs) I I said that because I swear I was like, that's what he's going to tell me to do. And you know what? I will because you just explained that whole thing to me and that is a crazy story and now I need to know. Yeah, I need to know. Yeah, if you just search Piltdown Man on uh, YouTube, there's a really good documentary about it that gives you a really good history. It's a BBC documentary on Piltdown Man. Kick ass. Yeah, my grade seven teacher when we did that early man thing and we made like the booklet and we learned about Pangea and everything, she was very adamant that <laughs> the hoax was a hoax and that it was, yeah, I was, and then that's what, I was just like, what the fuck is this all about? And like, it wasn't until years later when I was like, oh, what? Like, my grade seven teacher was a crazy ass bitch. She thought that this <laughs> fake thing was real. She wasn't, I know her, yeah, she was insane. She was she an was insane, insane lady. She, she was a very crazy, energetic, wow. Yeah, we had a system nuts. in our class, like, like a classist system. A point system tells you how good you were throughout the year. And if you're good, you get to go like do something cool. And if you're bad, you had to sit in the class. And yeah. if, I was always bad because she was, yeah. Well, how much yeah. is that is self-perpetuated, right? Like if you're, con- if you come in and you only got one sticker compared to someone who's yeah. like eight, then you're, you're, you consider yourself bad, then you're going to do bad. Yeah. yeah. Like why should I even bother, right? Yeah. Why should why I should even try? Mind? Yeah. Fucking hated that <laughs> class. Good God. Um, 
Tell us about your work now because you do something really cool now. Yeah, just tell us about it. Okay. Um, well, what 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 part of my work would you like to know about? Because well, I was- I, when we talked about this um, the last time we hung out, I was just like really excited that you would like let you like do work with First Nations. I think yes. that's awesome. Yeah. Um, and the specific First Nation, yeah. um, and that you're just a a part of another place's indigenous population's journey to yes like figuring stuff out and i just think that that's really freaking awesome yeah yeah, um, yeah i just started working it's been about a month now uh, as an archaeologist for the semiamu first nation and um yes it's exactly where i need to be at this moment in time after working consulting archaeology for 20 years working for um environmental com- companies and being contracted out for um construction companies to do that side of the work it's refreshing to be on the other side to work with the First Nations who are actually the stewards of the land um, and, uh, and to be able to, to, to be responsible for their, to be the caretaker of their heritage is a responsibility that, uh, that I, take, uh, I take very greatly. Like it's very serious yeah. to me that, uh, that they've entrusted me with, uh, with taking care of their history and, and their heritage. And, um, and, and to be able to, to talk about um, conservation in a way that um, is, well, to, to be able to talk about conservation as opposed to mitigation, I think is something that's very refreshing. To have, um, uh, like one of the things that we do is a lot of what we do actually is just try to have people understand that the old ways, the old colonial ways of doing things aren't making sense anymore. And that's, uh, that's non-sustainable. kind Non-sustainable. Of, yeah, it's non-sustainable. I, it's just, there's, and we, we get that a lot because we get a lot of, you know, First Nations, we're, we're, we want First Nations consultation. Uh, no, that's the buzzword that we hear a lot of, yeah. is First Nations consultation, First Nations consultation. But the problem is that a lot of these people don't understand what that means. They just think of it as nothing more than, you know, checking a Stamp. box. Yeah. It's like, have this person sit here, and have listen. them listen to what we have to say, Photo and what ops. we're going to do, and then we've done our job. Yeah. But when that person tells you, and this happens with the Samyamu First Nations quite a bit. Because when that person says, actually, there's an archaeological site there, you probably don't want to dig there. Mm-hmm. That's what First Nations consultation is. Then you say, okay, well, let's make a change. But that's that's not what happens because people are like, oh, well, what, what do they know? You know, well, whatever, whatever. <laughs> and then, of course, the, the, the construction will happen. And lo and behold, there's an archaeological site exactly where they said it was <laughs> going to be. Because they would know. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's what First Nations consultation should be. Uh, First Nations consultation should be consulting from the very high levels of uh, of planning process, not at the lower levels of uh, of implementation. And uh, and you know these are kind of uh, and we're in a, we're in a we're in a place right now where where these kinds of policies and processes are starting to be flushed out. Like they're just being created. So they just have to people have to understand that that there's more to to it than just doing it you have to understand the concept itself you have to understand the the idea that you know this is a this is land that was here for people before us the idea that when when you identify an archaeological site and bones start coming out of it human bones start coming out of it you know that's significant it's it's somebody's ancestor from that nation from that land it's actually more, more than more than me nebulously talking about Gilmithia as being my ancestors, mm-hmm. this is like 
this is flesh and bone, right? Like this is people are being dug out of the ground and then they have to be interred again. And there's a lot of um, procedures that are requ- required for stuff like that. And it happens a lot. And um, there's, there's just a lot of negative attitudes towards it because it's just like impeding construction yeah. when in fact that shouldn't be the way you look, you look at it. Well, yeah, it's just the profitability and the bottom line is, yeah, that's what yeah, it's their, like, that's their priority. Yeah, it's all the time. It's like, oh, you're an archaeologist. You're the guy who uh, who makes us stop work all the time. Yeah, you're the guy it's who your makes fault. It's like, no, nah, man, that's part of the Heritage Conservation Act. I'm just helping your ass. Goodness. <laughs> okay, so I would like to just like reverse and take it back just a bit. When I have a conversation about identity, I think, and like going to high school. And, you know, like, what was that experience like? What was, like, the ratio of, like, ethnic versus non-ethnic? Um, who did you identify with the most? Um, was it confusing? Yeah. Um, great question. <laughs> um, I, I actually write a little bit about this on my chapter for University of Fraser Valley as well. Um, coming in from Sparwood, I, I did my, you know, obviously from kindergarten to grade 10, I was in Sparwood. So I met the same 500 people for the first 15 years of my life, you know, it was like high school was great, uh, great eight to 12, maybe about 500 people in the school. I knew all of them. Everybody knew me. My friends were, um, you know, mainly my closest friends were, uh, were Punjabi Sikhs. Uh, I did obviously have, uh, have white friends as well. Uh, I still keep in touch with many of them, many of them now, of course. And, um, eventually it came a point in time. Well, actually, no, growing up, I, I, I was called Packy a lot, actually, a lot, uh, which confused the shit out of me because, uh, because I was, wasn't from Pakistan. Didn't really make sense to call me a Packy if I wasn't from Pakistan, right? But, um, but there came a point in time where that changed. And I would say in the 90s when uh, hip-hop culture started becoming popular, when um, movies like Juice and Boys in the Hood came out yeah, yeah. and all of a sudden being uh, a person of color was cool, then my role shifted. In Sparwood, you know, I wasn't the brown guy anymore. I wasn't a Paki anymore. Now people were referring to me with the N-word, using the N-word, which, uh, you know, being the only people of color, we were kind of the de facto N-people out there. And we embraced it. I'm not going to lie. We embraced it great because it's better to be be friends with people who thought you were a cool N-word than to be ostracized by people who thought you were a Paki. Yeah. So... So we, we, you know, I mean, I, I know a lot of people, a lot of Indo-Fijian people embrace the hip-hop culture. Um, and I, I kind of think that that's one of the reasons why is because when the hip-hop culture became, came to the forefront, all of a sudden there was this, this culture of people of color that was cool. And yeah. it wasn't us, right? Like, you know, we, and, we did, and we didn't have an Indo-Fijian culture, so we didn't have anything to latch on to. So there was all of a sudden this, this culture of being black that, people kind of gravitated towards. And that's, uh, that's what, what's what we did too, of course, um, for, for a couple of years out there. And then, um, and then uh, unfortunately, I finished uh, high school here in Surrey, grade 11 and 12. I did it senior, uh, at Queen Elizabeth Senior Secondary School in Surrey. Um, go Royals. <laughs> so, um, so that was actually a culture shock unto itself. I moved from a place with 500 kids where I knew everyone and everyone knew me to a school of 2,000 kids. And I knew nobody. And of course, nobody knew me. And, um, and this was only at grade 11 and grade 12. And, and I've come to realize that um, living in the lower mainland, it's kind of hard to make friends. Especially like if, you've made, if you have like childhood friends, 
easy. Like they, they're your friends forever. Yeah. But like by the time you get to 11, grade 11 and 12, like they've pretty much got themselves their, their own cliques and everyone's kind of in their own thing. So um, then, you know, to further that, um, I saw some, some uh, groups that I'd never seen before. Like, uh, you know, coming from Sparwood, me as a Muslim, I was totally fine with my, with my Sikh friends. We were, we're all, we're best friends. But, uh, but here there was, you know, you had the, the Indo-Fijian people were separate from the, the Sikh Punjabi people. And then of course the Muslim people in the Indo-Fijian groups were separate from the Hindu people or the, uh, the people who came fresh off the boat, the Dipperts as they were called, were separate oh from God, everybody. I forgot about that word. Right? Wow. Right? There was like all this. Deep cut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I had never heard that word until I moved here. And I was like, what? What, are these, what is this stuff? And then, you know, that's just the brown, that, that was just the brown groups, right? Let alone all the other colors of people that were out there. And nobody got along with it. Or, or if they got along, there were still groups of people. And I came in as an outsider and I didn't feel like I fit in with any of these groups, nor did I even know which group I would fit into uh, or what kind of category there was. Um, Coming, you know, at 15 years old, I think now when I meet 15-year-old people who are born and raised in the lower mainland, I come to realize exactly how naive I was because I knew nothing compared to how much these kids know about the society that they were in. So um, what I used to do, I had no friends actually, grade 11. Um, When I would come to school early, as a matter of fact, I would hide in the washroom to, uh, so, so like people wouldn't think I'm a loser. I didn't have any friends. So I would just hide in the washroom until the bell rang and then, you know, go about my day. Um, come grade 12 though, I made some friends in grade 12, you know, some of us outcasts kind of got together and figured out that it was better off being together as friends than mm-hmm. figuring out what we're doing. And it's kind of funny now that I think about it, that all those people were, um, were all people who grew up somewhere else and moved to Surrey. And we all just kind of grouped together as, as people who didn't quite fit into the, nice. to, to what was all going on. All the fringe kids. Yeah, all fringe kids. Yeah. Nice. Ooh. That was a lot like me in high to, school too. Yeah, right? The whole ragtag group of people you would not expect. <laughs> He'd see us and be like, why do all of you look like you're from a different subculture? That's very <laughs> Like punk yeah. rockers, metalheads, and like gangster looking kids. And like, nerdy Asian kids all hanging out together. Yeah. Yeah. It was funny. It was like, cause I remember I met, you know, Indo-Fijian friends, but I didn't quite fit in with them and, you know, and meet other different groups and didn't quite click with anyone. But the ones I clicked with were the ones who didn't click with anyone else. Yeah. Totally. Right. Would you say that, you know, now at this point, um, you know, with this like very meaningful conversation that you had with your, dad and you know with the work that you do and the work that you would like to do um you know within as you've said your dad's culture how do you feel like the you know coming into your own identity if at all is playing with like raising your kids now um i think that was kind of the catalyst for it all um especially because my kids um are half indo i'm indo-fijian and my wife is from pakistan or her originally from Pakistan. So my kids aren't, you know, full-blooded Indo-Fijian. So growing up, as, as they grow up, I've come to realize, oh, you know, their culture and heritage is important to me. Uh, it's important to me to, that they understand their culture and heritage as well. And um, and it's more, and for them, it's actually a little bit more tricky than it was for me because it's not as straightforward. So for me to be able to teach them about Indo-Fijian culture and Indo-Fijian heritage I have to understand it myself. And as I was going through 
the process of trying to figure out where we as Indo-Fijians fit in this world, I started to come to realize that there was a lot of work to do on identifying us as people, um, as solidifying us as a group, um, as as identifying cultural traits, uh, bringing pride in, into our, uh, our our people. And that was one of the things that I think in my, it, well, it wasn't my research, it was more my observations that I made, was that you know, in general, Indo-Fijian people were oft to make fun of ourselves, whether it be the way we spoke, whether it be the color of our skin, whether it be um, the way we dressed. Um, we would make, we would just as much as another group of people doing it would jump in and, and you know, make fun of, of ourselves too. Uh, why was the question, you know, that always comes up. It's like, why? It was because we didn't have pride in ourselves as our, as, as our, as a community, as a culture. Like if you, if, you, if you know who you are, if you know who your history is, then you don't make fun of it. You actually are quite proud of it. It's quite the opposite. But if you don't know, then you're just jumping on board everybody else just to fit in. Because you know, if you don't know what you're talking about, you're not going to tell somebody, hey, stop making fun of my culture because what else are you going to say? Like if you don't know about your culture, if you, don't, if you can't tell them about the sacrifices our ancestors made to get us to where we are, to actually shut them up, then you're probably just going to fit in and just laugh, laugh along. I mean, I, I did it a lot, you know, when I was called a Paki, I used to have to do, have to do it a lot. And just be like, ha, 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 that's very funny, you know? Right. But, but you know, now with, with knowledge, once you're, you're more empowered to stand up for your rights and for your beliefs. And, uh, and I came to realize that as Indo-Fijians, we didn't do that. As, uh, and not just as Indo-Fijians on a macro level, but even on a micro level when it comes to my own family, when it comes to my own uh, uncles and aunts, for example, once they have their own nuclear family, they kind of separate from the other fam- from, from the, the greater family, and then they don't care as much about the well-being of their brothers and their sisters and their kids as much as they do about their own kids and their own culture and their, their, I mean, their own people. But that's a very selfish way of looking at it. Like if you, don't, if you don't have the background of your history and your heritage with you, then you don't care about how your culture progresses in the future. All you care about is how you progress in the future and how, how, how successful you are or how successful your kids are compared to everybody else. And in that, in, when you start making those kinds of comparisons, then you have no problem cutting other people down to try to make yourself look good. And that happens in our community a lot. I feel like you just described our entire childhood. Right. Mm-hmm. Like you just described and explained it and now it makes sense right. in my head but seriously you just articulated yes. our entire childhood Does, doesn't that make like yeah, yeah. the same thing happens to me and and i i mean yeah like same thing happens to people i used to trust as my cousins and yeah. stabbed me in the back and it's like you did that just to make yourself look good why 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 not this why not back me up instead because they don't care yeah. and it's because they don't have anything to care about like once you realize that somebody like Pandit Totaram Sanadia was an important person in our history yeah. and you can relate to that guy and you can actually create a bond with him, then you know that you want the betterment for your own people in the future. You want more Pandit Sanadias to come out of our community. But if it's not my son who does it, then I would want your son to be that person. Or, you know, because all you want is you want it to be an Indo-Fijian person who gets up there as opposed to just my person, you know what I mean? 
And, yeah. But that only happens when you have that shared heritage and that her- shared culture that you can all draw from, that foundation that everybody can build on. And we just don't have that yet. But that's what we're doing. That's why we're, that's why we're here. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like the experience that we have had since, you know, meeting everyone through the exhibit, which we will talk about, like, I, I don't think, like, I've ever really felt, like, as much gassing up as we have the last few months. Like, we've never experienced this level of support. Um, and a lot of it comes because of the like-mindedness, because of the having of the same goals and knowing that there is something greater than all of us that we need to be able to impart on our next generation, like your kids. And I feel like that is something that has been lacking for sure. But again, like it's just so common in our culture and I like the way that you explained it. Like the, it's because there is like this complete unattachment. Like there's no attachment to any part of culture. I feel like, to be honest, our culture, um, you know, since the first wave of Fijian immigrants coming here, or like the large wave, I guess, you know, in the, in the 80s and early 90s, was just survival. So that's just self-preservation. And that is the theme that I feel like we have seen and experienced. And that's all we know is that it's just like you're on your own. It's like every person for themselves. And like, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're only a culture that's about 143 years old or something like that. And our culture was born directly out of trauma. And, and that's, that's where it started. But it also, like when, when people left the coups in 1987 and fled to come to Canada, for example, they came here as refugees. Not all of them came as pure refugees. Some came to take advantage of leaving Fiji at this point in time. But some people did come out of fear for their livelihood, for their life, and for their, for their limbs. Some, some of the things that happened to some of these people, I don't want to talk about, but it did happen to these people yeah. that are here now yeah. living here our our parents generation it happened to them that was trauma that they had to deal with that they came here and now we're dealing with that trauma mm-hmm. like this is all this is all that our, our our culture has been our culture has just been responses to traumatic events right and we're just trying to identify those tra- the trauma so we can stop it right and try yeah. to change it and try to and and the thing is um I, as, as much as I've been doing research on Indo-Fijian culture history, I haven't done a lot of research on Indo-Fijians in Fiji. But what I have found out is that there's a lot of reconciliation efforts that are happening there between the indigenous and the Indo-Fijian people. Um, but that's not happening in Canada. And um, like the people who left the coups in 1987 came very disheartened with what was going on and, 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 and very disenfranchised. Uh, feelings about what was going on in Fiji. Those feelings haven't changed. They've just softened a bit because they haven't been in Fiji. But no one's taken the effort to reconcile with 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 the the diaspora that left. So we're still here hanging, thinking, well, you know, you guys call yourselves Fijian in Fiji, but I feel uncomfortable calling myself a Fijian in Canada because for the past thirty years, I was told I was not allowed to be called a Fijian because that was not because that's a racial thing it's not a nationality thing and now you're saying it's okay for you guys to do it but 
how am I supposed to say it's okay for me to do when you guys have been telling me for a long time it's not? So as I've been trying to identify the Indo-Fijian culture, I've come to realize that eventually there's going to come a point in time where we will identify it, we'll be comfortable with it, we'll adopt it, but then we're going to have to change it. Because once we identify it and adopt it and we become Indo-Fijian people, there's a greater responsibility for us to separate that racial division between Indians and Indigenous people. Like ideally, we shouldn't be um, an Indo-Fijian people. We should be Canadian Fijians, all from Fiji, right? Like, like what's the difference? Uh, like one of the great examples, and I haven't talked to, to about this before, but there's uh, when I while, while working at the Semiamu First Nation, the one there's a a lady who works there who's good friends with an Indigenous Fijian person from uh, from the area as well, and they're 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 good buddies, and they've talked about how. They want to do um, cultural exchanges of canoes and stuff and, and really cool stuff. Like they really want to do all this really cool stuff between each other, right? And uh, she was getting really excited about talking about it. And, I, and I'm thinking about it while she's talking about it. I was like, you know, you, you're right. Like you guys have both, you're both indigenous cultures that are, you know, indigenous Canadians. Well, indigenous, uh, okay, I'll call them indigenous Canadians and indigenous Fijians that have spent like you've evolved in the similar ways. You've evolved use, being able to use the land to your advantage. You you have this connection with Mother Nature that there's uh, a deep connection with your land that uh, that you know regular people don't have. You know you have the same kind of um, you know maritime lifestyle, so you have a lot of things that you can uh, relate to, which is great, which is actually which is cool. But that's where it stops, because after. The, after those similarities, when it comes to the way that the government marginalizes First Nations people in Canada, that's where the Indo-Fijian culture steps yeah. in. And that's where the Indigenous people relate to them. So while they were having this conversation about their cultures, I was thinking to myself, sitting in the side, like, what about us? What about the, the Indo-Fijian people? Mm-hmm. Right? Because you're native to Fiji. Well, my dad is native to Fiji, too. And his culture is native to Fiji. It's not native to India. It's not native to Mauritius yeah. or Trinidad. It's native to Fiji. So where we have just as much as the right as you guys do about cultural exchanges and having these conversations. But you actually have more to relate to with the Indo-Fijian people because of all the marginalization that's happened than you do with the indigenous people as a matter of fact. So, you know, it's just kind of, it's just kind of made me realize that... Uh, there's still a lot of work that has to be to, to come out of this, you know. Like especially with my with Semiyamu First Nations, I would like what I'd like to do is have some more um, uh, opportunities for the Indo-Fijian culture and the Semiyamu First Nations culture to 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 interact and meet and have some sort of uh, some sort of cultural exchanges on that regard, so they could better understand the plight that we are going through yeah. is very much more like their them as yeah. opposed to uh, to what they think. And um, and and stuff like like the stuff like that is what we need to 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 you know that's the kind of awareness that we have to bring about. Yeah, I love the way that you just described that because I feel like for a very long time I felt this strong sense of how we like as Indian Fijians need to show up for our indigenous community here like we really need to because we can identify with them and like they don't even know probably but i i don't necessarily feel the need to 
like, it's not about like centering ourselves. It's just that like, we can, like, why can't we relate to them more? Like, why is it that we can't see ourselves in them? We really should be able to. And I feel like we just have this strong responsibility to stand with them and support them in their endeavors. Absolutely. For sure. For sure. Oh, um, I wanted to mention how, um, just to sort of like snowball off of what you said, you know, in this conversation that you're describing with, you know, your, um, like the indigenous Canadian and the indigenous Fijian, I want to be like intentional in telling like the world out there, I guess, listening that, that, you know, you know, when you said that part where you said like, you know, but like, what about us? Because I know what people are going to think. And no, it's not about like centering Indo-Fijians in that conversation. It's not about that because I know that like we really share this perspective where when we talk about our identities and ourselves as Indo-Fijians, we don't really do that without talking about Indigenous Fijians because we can't. We really can't do that. We would be so remiss if we did not mention credit talk about all of the ways in which indigenous Fijian culture is, has become such a large part of Indo-Fijian culture and, and vice versa as well. Right. And, um, I, I want to, I want to talk about the exhibit at the museum of Surrey and talk about, um, I want you to tell us about the, the, the tapa trim and you know, how this sort of ties into that. Well, that's actually a great segue into the exhibit. Uh, the uh, the tapa trim I specifically used as a border throughout the exhibit um, for two reasons. One was to uh, to have it metaphorically sit there as a border, like the island of Fiji itself is bordered by water, so it's kind of it's 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 encapsulated in this island. So I wanted to border the entire exhibit with this tapa border to kind of to kind of exemplify that. Um, also, um, because I use the tapa, I wanted to use the tapa because um, it's, it represents the, Indo-Fiji, the indigenous Fijian people. Um, because without the indigenous Fijian people, we wouldn't be who we are. I mean, that's what makes us so unique as Indo-Fijians is the, uh, the characteristics that we have from indigenous Fijian people. Uh, their language, their food, uh, some of the customs and rites, clothing, um, these things that we have that are very unique. I mean, one of the most unique things about the Indo-Fijians is our use of Nangona, which, you know, no other Indian diaspora mm-hmm. does. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's directly a response from uh, our interactions with indigenous Fijians. So, so the top up was, was kind of like my shout out to, uh, to the indigenous Fijian people in a, in a more of a silent way to, to let, to let people know that despite the Indo-Fijian culture being a very unique thing, it's still encapsulated within this boundary of indigenous uh, Fijian culture and indigenous Fijian uh, uh, society. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the cool things that happened with this exhibit was that there's an individual named Eric who, uh, who contacted me and asked me that very question. He was like, you know, I, I don't understand what you're doing here. I was like, this is a uh, Indo-Fijian uh, exhibit that you made, but it's like there's there's tapa there's like indigenous Masi designs all over the place like why did you do that like why did you why did you put that in there and I was so happy you asked me the question because right. you know that's, you want to talk about it I want to talk about yeah it. so that's exactly what I explained to him was I, I I took the opportunity to explain to him that if it wasn't for the indigenous people that we wouldn't be 
who we are, who we are. Uh, so this was my uh, this was my kind of shout out, my little ode to uh, to the indigenous uh, population. One of the coolest things that came out of that actually was this uh, individual Eric. He um, contacted uh, well his his daughter actually is a is a uh, a professor. Well, she's got a PhD in uh, in, in studies that have to do with uh, with Fiji as well. Cool. Uh, and she works in the the UK. So he got me in contact with her, and we've been talking about stuff. And uh, and she also and he also contacted me, or he got me in contact with the uh, with the curator of ceramics at the University of uh, or the uh, Museum of Anthropology at the at the at University of British Columbia right. at UBC. So I got to go out and talk to Carol Mayer about uh, about their Fiji exhibit, and she was, and, and this is like probably one of the coolest things that happened last year out of this exhibit was to have the curator of the Museum of Anthropology call me up, mm-hmm. ask me to come over there, take a look at her exhibit, and tell me my thoughts on what needs to be there. Amazing to uh, to represent Indo-Fijian culture. That's I mean, so exciting. It was it was like it's pretty cool. That was yeah. that was pretty cool. So, uh, so we, you know, I got together with a, with a bunch of us and we, we kind of, uh, threw some ideas around about what, uh, what could come up and I, uh, and I sent it to her. So, so I'm just kind of waiting to, to hear back, yes, but, but I, I sent cool. her like four or five good, uh, good ideas. And I think, yeah. uh, I think something cool will come out of it, but, but just to have, just to have people calling me and, and, and being able to like want my time or want to uh, want to hear from me or want my opinion on something has just been a very humbling and a very humbling experience to be honest. Like, um, to be like, I mean, you guys said it right off the bat, and it's this is a little embarrassing to 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 think that uh, you know people come to me to ask me questions about about this topic. Sure. Yeah. I know, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm by no way an expert at this, um, but uh, but I'm something. It's something that I am passionate about, and and I think eventually it'll come to a point where I think Carol Carol was the person who said it the most. She was like, eventually, you know, if you do pursue your uh, your PhD, then eventually you will become the authority on this and people will come to you to want to ask you your opinion on these things. And uh, and I think that's, uh, that is that is one of the goals that I have in my life now is uh, is to get to that point in life. And I'll call Carol back and be like, I did it. I did it, right? <laughs> yeah. I did it. I. You know what? Yeah. And I sure hope so that like, you know, once you have that PhD in hand that you're like, yep, like I am the authority on this. On the other side, I will say that like the the way that you just described, like, you know, how it is that you feel just reminds me a lot of like the imposter syndrome that like we feel a lot as, um, you know, people who are out here proactively trying to educate people. Um, and then when people come to us and ask us questions and, you know, we don't always know, like we actually got a DM the other day. Um, someone messaged us asking like, how can we like, what are reparations that Indo-Fijians deserve or something like that? And we were yeah, talking, we were just talking about how we can organize something yeah. like that and what that would look like and et cetera and et cetera. But yeah, but it was kind of like, well, I like, I'm not really there yet. Like I'm like, yeah. I don't know. And we can sort of kind of argue that some reparations have happened. And, you know, for me, I feel like a priority is that, you know, just going back to the trauma, the trauma has to be dealt with at some point. Um, It doesn't stop. It just gets passed down, but it has to be dealt with. And I feel like that's what that is like a urgent need. Yeah. And that's what it is at this point now, especially out here in the diaspora. Oh, I totally agree. Like we, we as first generation Canadians who take who take the 
initiative to live our life different than what everybody else is living in our community, take it upon ourselves to make those changes that haven't been made yet. Um, and, and it's not easy to do because our parents, God bless them, could only prepare us for the best that they could prepare us for in this world. That's all they could do. There's only so much that they could do to 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 get us prepared in the society that we live in in, West, in here in this in this country. Um, so when we step, when we decide to step outside the preconceived ideals or the the timeline or the the lifespan that, like I had said, you know the the, the Indo-Fijian Muslim uh, timeline, for example, the lifespan. If if I take the initiative to step out of that then I also have to take the initiative to learn how to, to do that because I don't believe we have the tools in the toolbox to navigate those kinds of things. Um, for example, um, arranged marriage is uh, like in my culture, in my, in my uh, family, in my culture, um, it's expected that uh, you, when you become of age, you will go to Fiji and you'll find someone to get married to and you'll have an arranged marriage and you'll come back and you'll sponsor them and they'll come here and um, why do they family. have to be from Fiji? Like, well, why can't they is, just be a Fijian who's here? But see, the thing is, yeah. uh, one of the advantages of that is that if you bring a Fijian or from Fiji to Canada, you perpetuate the culture. Yeah. So for one thing, the kids learn the language a lot easier because you speak the language with your Indo-Fijian wife than you do the English language. So they learn the language better. They learn the culture better. And, and then it kind of perpetuates that, the culture. Uh, that's one of the advantages of doing that. Um, but the thing was, for me, for example, was because I had decided I wanted to be an archaeologist, I knew that there would come a day where I'd be going to galas and stuff like that, or I'd be going to some sort of symposiums or things right. where I'd like to take my wife along with me. And, you know, I would like to have, uh, you know, somebody who could could carry her conversation with these people just yeah. as much as everyone else. No disrespect to anybody overseas. But um, I just kind of found, like, the people that I was being matched up with weren't going to be compatible with that kind of a lifestyle for me because I wasn't going to live the lifestyle that my parents thought had preconceived for me. It was going to be different for me. So I took it upon myself to, um, to find people or find, find uh, partners that were outside of my, my culture or outside right. of my, my um, uh, cultural circle. And, and when, I, when I did that, I came to realize that I didn't have the tools to navigate a successful relationship in that manner because I was never taught those tools. You were taught, I was taught, you know, go get married to someone. She comes here. She's just happy to be here, man. Yeah. So she's, not, you know, she's not going to complain. She's not going to, yeah. she's not going to ask you to, you know, pull your weight in the house. And, you know, she's not going to ask you to, to, to take Yikes. her out on trips and stuff like that. She's just happy to be in Canada, basically. So you don't have to, to do those things, but I do because I decided not to, to to live that life, and you know, and that's just a relationship example. But there's examples with your careers, and there's examples with all these other things that you have to navigate. That you, no one's done it before you, so you have to kind of like learn as you go along, and and it's important for us to do that so we can teach that to to the next generation. Because like I said earlier, was when I went to school, there was nobody there to teach me how to to navigate school, so I never really learned the things that I, that I was taught, I just got good grades until I finally figured out how to, to, to learn the things that I was taught. Nobody ever taught me that kind of stuff. But that's the kind of stuff that we need to teach the next generations and the next generations is how to be, because um, our parents were all just, you know, coming from trauma in survival mode. They were just trying to make sure we had food, food shelter and clothing. 
Right. So now it's our responsibility for our next generation to make sure that they're viable, productive members of society and to be able to integrate into that society. And we're the ones right now who are navigating through, toward, through all the racism, through all the, the institutionalized racism, through all those kinds of things to get to that point. But, uh, well, you know, we have, but while we're doing that, we still have to identify who we are as people, as a culture. Yeah, so it's yeah. like it's kind of like the next step, right? Like it's like we're, you know, we've we sort of inherited like this trauma, and then like I, I like how you said like, oh, I had to go do this thing. I didn't know how to do it. Like I was not passed on the tools to do that. Right? It's no. fascinating how brown culture is such that like, no, you don't like you focus on like school and studies and becoming successful and then you can go do the relationship stuff but up until then you're not doing any of it yeah so how are you supposed to learn it how are you supposed to learn it yeah like and especially with segregation in, in the muslim culture when there's segregation between right. males and females yeah. it's like well how do you learn to build product um positive relationships with the opposite sex because you're never interacting with them mm-hmm. and then your example level. is your parents like yeah. that's the only yeah. Uh, example or like the strongest example of a relationship that you have is your parents. And as you said, you know, when you went to your white friend's house as a kid and his parents were actually showing affection, like, you know, that just goes to show like the types of environments that we've grown up in where there's. Yeah. It's just none you of just that. Don't do you that. just don't do that. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how do you, how do you become a really good emotional person if yeah. you don't know how to, to go work through your emotions. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm doing it right now. I'm 44 years old now and uh, I'm still trying to realize how to positively uh, express the emotion of anger. Like most of the time it's been, you know, you just don't do it. You just don't get angry. Just don't get upset, you know, because if you get upset, you upset somebody else and then that person gets upset at you and then you have to placate them. So just don't get upset, right? Mm. Or if you get upset and that person gets upset with you and then you don't know how the relationship is going to be like afterwards, moving forward, if it's a professional relationship or whatever. So, or the, or there's the fact of getting upset and being able to control it and being okay with it 10 minutes later and being like, all right, it's dealt with and we can move on. But, uh, but you know, as, as a child, that, 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 ang- that emotion was never explored. So, you know, parents would always be like, you know, you know, and stuff like that. It's like, well, you know, so you're not allowed to. You're not allowed to get angry at your parents. You're just not allowed. But who else do you get angry at growing up? There's no one else to get angry at other than your siblings and you beat them up and then you get beats anyways. Yeah. So, so, so yeah, it's just lots of, lots of stuff that we have to, like we're still in the infancy. Like I, like we're only 142 years old as a culture. So we're still in, in our infancy of trying to flush out what we are. Um, okay, tell us how Canadian are you? Tell us about like you here, what you're interested in, what do you do for fun? Well, I okay, I'm I'm a competitive ball hockey player. So um, so yeah, I love love playing ball hockey. And um, people, you know, so a lot of people a lot like, of people will scoff at like at like ball hockey. It's not even a real sport. Well, you can't compare it to ice hockey. It's more like comparing field hockey to ice hockey. It's a totally, totally different sport, right? Once you remove the ice and the skates and the sure. ball, then it's a totally different sport. You've changed they it. found Alex Burroughs in a ball hockey league. Yeah, right, they so. did, man. The best ball hockey player to <laughs> ever like, played the game was Alex Burroughs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, uh, yeah, he, I never got to play with him, but he played in the Nationals with Montreal a couple of years. Uh, that Montreal team is just awesome. 
But uh, yeah, I've been playing. I've been playing ball hockey. Well, I've been playing ball hockey my whole life. I mean, as a as a child of immigrant parents, I never had the opportunity to ice skate when I was growing up, and I don't blame my parents for that. I blame myself more than anything, just to not uh, have been adamant about going to do it. But with that being said, I mean, you know, Canadian parents are adamant about having their kids do it. So. So I didn't mm-hmm. get to go. And that's also like, I mean, I think it's important to mention that like hockey is very much so an expensive sport. Oh, yeah. Like there is a reason that there are so many brown soccer players sure. um, and other ethnic, you know, soccer players, but like not so much hockey yeah. um, was, because of the time investment from parents as well. Yeah. Right. Like, like my kids, my son is in uh, his third year of ice hockey right now. And the first year we enrolled him, I was completely blown away by the lack of South Asian people in uh, in his group because I would have just assumed that it would have been a really, really good um, example of the population, you know, of uh, of Surrey. There would have been, but it wasn't at all. It was quite the opposite. And as I've gotten to know the, the families and the parents in these past three years, I've come to realize that it's very, you know, there's only certain tax bracket of people that can actually afford to go and do these kinds of things. Yeah. So, um, so ice hockey. But but with that being said, ball hockey on the other hand is very, very popular with the South Asian community. Accessible. Yeah, yeah. it's very accessible. Um, it's very non-intimidating as well. Um, my friend, uh, I have a friend named Dampy Barar who uh, who, who um, runs this program called Upna Hockey out of Calgary. And basically it's a program where he links South Asian hockey players with mentors, uh, South Asian mentors. Um, and so he finds the South Asian players that are in like, like that have gotten higher level of coaching or playing. And, uh, and he himself was a semi-pro uh, hockey player in the States as well when he was uh, in his twenties. So, and, and actually just to give him a cool plug, he won the, uh, the Willie O'Ree um, community hero award from the national hockey league in 2020 for, uh, for what he's, what he's been doing with, uh, with the community with up hockey. But, um, but the reason he did it was because there was a, a lot of intimidation for ethnic people getting into ice hockey because ice hockey is, is, is very specific types of people I would say that are that are in it so so to have you know like it's in, in a, like had my dad been around now it would have been easier for him to go through up in hockey to get me to school but you know there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of, of segregation that happens within parents themselves in ice hockey so he's trying to trying to eliminate all of that but in ball hockey that kind of stuff doesn't happen because it's mainly the South Asian people who run all this stuff that uh, that, that uh, that's being done. Like I, for example, am on the uh, the executive committee for the Surrey Minor Ball Hockey Association because my my kids play. So uh, so I wanted so I help coach and run, awesome. run some of the programs there. And uh, and with with South and and what I really enjoy with uh, with ball hockey is that it's a uh, it's a sport where you have to have the mindset of a basketball player the skill set of a hockey player and the endurance of a soccer player to play the sport, you know? So you need to have like these three different skill sets to be able to play this game properly. And as a goalie, I play goalie. Um, as a goalie, it's a lot harder sport for me to play because it's a lot easier for hockey, for ball hockey, play, for hockey players to play ball hockey than it is to play ice. Um, so that means that they have a lot easier for them to score goals. So it's a lot harder for me to have to stop them. Um, but what I like most about it, it's really just the competition. I mean, there's... Um, Ball hockey has gotten to a point where it's very well organized. There's the Canadian Ball Hockey Association and the, the British Columbia Ball Hockey Association, okay. and they also have world championships that they do all over the world. Oh wow! Um, and they have, uh, you know, the, this tournaments like worldwide tournaments. This really cool tournament they do in Bermuda that uh, they have this outdoor 
uh, a ball hockey rink in Bermuda on the side of a cliff overlooking the ocean. Shut it's up. so cool. It's great. Um, so, so I've been, I've played, I've been playing for, for like 15, 20 years now. Well, I guess all my life, if you consider yeah. road hockey, uh, I won the provincial championship in 2017. Uh, which is my, uh, which is actually, I'm quite proud of that, but, uh, <laughs> Good, but you should I mean, be. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to do something, might as well do it the best you can. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, it's just been just, just the, uh, with the, the camaraderie, you know, the, the teamwork, the, the, competition is just it's just really some of those things I really love about the sport and the sport is kind of very similar to uh to the Indo-Fijian community believe it or not uh where it's still <laughs> it's still very very uh, grassroots it's very new it's still being shaped like we're still building it we're still creating something right now and that's and you know it's kind of cool to have my hand in it and try to help out try to help like like shape this this institution well I still have Roller hockey skates that I've used like five times. <laughs> you should come play with us. Yeah, sometime. draw me a line if you guys <laughs> ever need help. Yeah, <laughs> that would actually be awesome. Yeah, we should come out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would love to check that out. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's been great. It's uh, it's it, in in the community, the ball hockey community themselves is a great bunch of guys too. Um, everybody's got like, a passion for the game. Everybody's and it, it's still like there was a documentary actually on uh, on Netflix. I think it was called. The Losers, maybe it's called The Losers, but um, it was a documentary about um, curling. And they were talking about the 80s and how curling had started as basically a drinking sport. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, eventually eventually it became, you know, people would start getting sponsors and then eventually they would start, the, the, the players would become more athletic and it kind of progressed to a point where it is now where, you know, you watch the Briar on TSN or something or like the Olympics, they have the, the, cur- the curling and stuff. And when I was watching curling, man. yeah, it was good. It's, it's, it's intense stuff yeah. man, for like just, you know, rolling rocks. It's great. But, uh, but yeah, it's like, that's what ball hockey's at right now. Ball hockey's at that kind of like initial stage of, of just being a, a beer league sport. It's like just a bunch of guys who like, I just, play for fun but but the sport's got a lot of skill to it it just doesn't have the 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 funding or the coaching right now to to really be a, a viable sport but you know someday someday it'll be in the olympics as a uh, as a real sport as yeah there's a lot of dumb sports in the olympics <laughs> that can say. go like i mean not not to toot my own horn but i'm pretty damn good we gonna see yeah. them because yeah, we'll proud. have to come out as a 44-year-old man, I can shut down those 22-year-old kids. Good. <laughs> nice. Pretty good. There's nothing better than taking my mask off at the end of a game because they're like, who the hell is that goalie? And then they see me and they're like, oh my God, he's an old guy. <laughs> <laughs> or after I take my gear off and they're like, really? He's that skinny. He's a small guy. I hear that oh, stuff all that's the time. so funny. But uh, yeah, I, I take great pride in that actually. So, you're, um, so there's like a boys league and a girls league and is it like by age like how like how established and popular is it i guess because you said both your kids play yeah right? yeah the, the uh the minor ball hockey associations all the all the different uh all the different jurisdictions here municipalities have their own uh their own uh committee their own body so you know there's the, the delta well, so i'm with the surrey minor ball hockey association we're just uh starting a girls program i think this is year number two or three of the girls program uh which is specifically just for girls to play um, other than that, we have the, well, they start from anywhere from four years old to 19 when they age out. So they can keep playing on different teams all the way up. Um, what we're trying to do is build the coaching as well now. So we can help 
with the with so the coaches will start young with the young kids and and kind of build them up to become viable good coaches by the time they turn to nineteen. Yeah. So the, I think the um, the kids program is really well done. It's really well run. There's a lot of dedicated uh, volunteers on the board as well that uh, that spend a lot of time and uh, a lot of their energy trying to trying to get all this stuff off the ground. I uh, I'm in charge with of. Um, the tykes and the mini tykes program, which I completely love because I take care of the three to six year old kids. Which nice. is it's just the, it's the best. Those little guys they're are having best. fun. Yeah, they're just having fun. Or sometimes they're not having fun. <laughs> horrible time. But uh, but it's the, the problem with ball hockey is there's a bit of a disconnect between the minor hockey and the adult hockey. So once you age out of minor hockey, most of the kids they'll have their own teams that they've played with, so they'll kind of bring that team to the adult league and then they'll get their ass kicked for like five years because you know you're a 20 year old kid you're playing against 30 year old men who've been playing the game for for over 20 years so they know how to play the game better but um it's starting to change i'm starting to see now in the past couple of years the uh the youth teams that are aging out of the kids programs and going into the adult programs are really competitive and i think it has to do a lot with the coaching that's uh, helping them out um and they're they're really good players, and and solely and solely, I'm going to get pushed out. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll we'll see. Cool. Yeah. It's like a whole other world didn't know existed, and like I grew up an athlete, totally for sure, and didn't like the only example of any ball hockey that I know of is like remember when I think you were still there, we we're both still there when the ball hockey court was put in at our elementary school, and it was like this big deal because there wasn't one anywhere. And every class had to, each division had to like sign up for it. And it was like a class had it each lunch hour. It was like a really big deal. And then like every single, like every single person in that class was out there that lunch, like playing to get their time in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's the best. I mean, ball hockey, all you need is a stick and a ball. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. yeah. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. I used to do that a lot as kids. Yeah. Backyard. Yeah. Terry's house. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If you had blades, wear your blades. If you don't, you're just in sneaks. But like there was like sticks galore. Yeah. For some reason. Yeah, we just had. <laughs> yeah. Last thing, just um, you know, plug the plug the exhibit. Tell us, tell everyone like where it is, um, and where they can find more info, where they can find more info about you and contact sure. you should you wish. Sure. Um, the uh, my exhibit is at the uh, Museum of Surrey, which is located at one fifty seven Street and Highway Ten in, in Cloverdale in uh, Surrey. The exhibit's called "The Indofijians: Surrey's Pocket of Paradise," and it actually has been extended. The exhibit was initially slated to be here from October to December of twenty twenty one, but uh, the museum has extended it. So, if you haven't had the opportunity to go check it out, please do. It will be uh, open on February first. 2022 so it'll be open on february march and april for three more months nice awesome it's a long time yeah and to get uh, any information you can go to www.surreymuseum.ca and uh to search the easiest thing to do is just search surrey museum fiji on uh, google yeah and, uh, the link will come up and uh if you want to get a hold of me you can get a hold of me on instagram at rizwan abbas um that's rizwan with two a's abbas with two b's Perfect. Nice. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming, man. We really appreciated you being here, especially driving out. 
Oh, in this uh, craptacular weather. Yeah, craptacular weather. <laughs> this is great. I'm like deep, deep into Ladner. I've never been <laughs> into this. It's so before. funny. I love, I love it when you said that earlier. Like this it's is like the deep, south. deepest in Ladner I've ever been. Yeah, There's a whole south. other side that we should show you. Yeah. 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 This <laughs> is the last bit of civilization before you go more. East and then, yeah. you, no, sorry, West. And then there's just farm. Oh, man. Farm yeah. and then ocean. Cool. Yeah. Next stop. Yeah. I island. call this like the Midwest of Ladner. Oh, yeah. Like this is like the Midwest. And then, <laughs> yeah. When you go a little further, <laughs> it's a bit, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's different. Yeah. And that was our interview with Rizwan Abbas. We are No Ties 1879. We're available on all the platforms, guys. So if you connected with anything that we said today and if you connected with Riz's story, please share our words and share with your friends and everyone who is learning and growing with you. Uh, Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, y'all. Super, super important. We appreciate it. We really value your feedback. So if you want to send us questions or feedback or any suggestions for episodes, please feel free to email us at noties1879 at gmail.com. We're at noties1879 podcast on Instagram and TikTok. So please go follow us there. As always, special thank you to our amazing and talented producer, Matt. Check him out on Spotify. We'll link to him in our show notes. Uh, I am at Angeline KP on Instagram. If you want to follow me there. And I am at Ash Neil Prakash on Instagram and at Ash Neil Prakash on my sorry ass TikTok account. <laughs> and I started an account and I started an account because I'm a shit disturber online. So in case at Ash Neil Prakash gets banned or blocked or whatever the fuck, mm. please add at Prakash Ash Neil on Instagram. <laughs> Boom, clever. There you go. Thanks so much, y'all. We'll talk to you later. Have a good one, guys. Bula. Bula.